if really the world changed on the 24th of February 2022, things cannot be done as they were being doing before that date. European leaders do need to really understand that European uh, policymaking cannot just stay as it was before. Hello and welcome to your Activities Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evi Kiori and this week we're traveling to Ukraine where European Council President Charles Michel, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and EU Chief Diplomat Joseph Borrell are set to meet with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky this Friday for the Ukraine summit. Almost a year after Ukraine's invasion by Russia, EU leaders are meeting to discuss the country's path in the EU, the Union support and the military assistance. So what's the clear message sent by the EU officials with their visit to Kiev and what can we expect from this meeting? So we're already in February 2023 almost a year from Russia's aggression on Ukraine. And on Friday, we will have a crucial summit for Ukraine's and the EU's future. To hear more on this topic, I'm joined by Ricardo Borges, head of the Europe in the World program at the European Policy Center Think Tank, and Alexandra Przozowski, Euroactive's editor on Global Europe. Alex, you are in Kiev as we speak, and you have been there a few times over the past year since the 24th of February last year. Could you recap for us uh, from then until where things stand now? I just arrived back in Ukraine this morning. Um, actually, considering your question, I had a very interesting chat with some Ukrainians on the train to Kiev that were coming back to the country. That sums up pretty well what, what you're actually asking. Because one of them mentioned that uh, in the first weeks of the war, there was a meme circulating in all social media. Um, it was a pro-Ukraine poster that, that was reading like, if, if Russia stops fighting, there will be no war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there will be no Ukraine. And I think one year on, that's indeed where we, where we currently stand. We've seen quite a progression from the initial stage of the war in February and March, um, especially with Russia's failed, we will be in Kiev in three days, blitzkrieg that essentially turned into um, a war of attrition and indiscriminate bombings and violence against civilians um, that came with it. I think it's it's actually safe to say that there was one important turning point last year in April um, where the news broke about Russian Russians retreating from Bucha and other places uh, in the suburbs of Kiev leaving all the devastation and mass graves that, that we've seen all over the media. Bucha and this war really represented the first definitive look at how the Russian military uses atrocity as a tactic. And that was also really the breaking point that has fortified Western support back then. I, I was there in May when the investigations were still going on, and it's, it's a view that one really doesn't forget. Um, But then the next phase in September, um, where we've seen another um, escalation with the Ukrainian, Ukrainian counteroffensive in which Russian attacks um, on the Ukrainian civilian population and infrastructure intensified. EU leaders are trying to send a strong message of solidarity with this major EU visit to Ukraine this week. Ricardo Borges believes that politics is influenced by powerful messages. So what makes this trip to Kiev so significant? 
I think it sends a very strong uh, message, uh, again, of the EU's commitment to um, Ukraine's European future. I mean, we cannot uh, uh, forget that y- Ukraine is, is a country uh, that is facing uh, an illegal aggression uh, um, uh, from Russia. And so the fact that the leaders are holding this this uh, EU-Ukraine summit in Kiev, that at least the information so far is that this meeting will will happen in Kiev is really uh, a strong message, a political uh, signal. I think um, politics is many many times done by symbolism, and I think there's a lot of symbolism in, in this meeting. Of course, then you would want that these discussions also are substantive and that there are things that will come out of, of, of this meeting. But I would say that under the current circumstances, um, uh, uh, where we are nearly, um, you know, um, marking uh, the first anniversary of Russia's aggression on Ukraine, the fact that these three leaders are going to, to Kiev um, to have uh, discussions with President Zelensky, I think it's a very important uh, political signal that is given. So what deliverables could we expect from this? If I'm not mistaken, this is the first visit of such a kind of um, EU administration in the war zone, which already, I think, speaks for quite a lot. So um, the main deliverable is already that, um, to send a message of solidarity while also encouraging Kiev to continue the reforms and um, all that is needed for eventual EU membership. But when it comes to actual deliverables, one can expect um, some progress in um, several policy areas. So it's it's more on the policy side of things um, when we look at customs-free access for Ukrainian exports, for example, access to the roaming-free zone of the EU and also inclusion in the single euro payments area and others. So um, all of those policy deliverables will be a part of the summit. Um, sanctions will be likely discussed as well and um, the general way forward when it comes to EU support to the country. When it comes to military support, I mean, this is more for NATO and member states, but likely we can expect to hear a bit more updates on the EU initiatives, um, like the training mission and and potential further support under the European Peace Facility. Alex, EU accession remains relevant in the room, uh, as we said earlier, and you've scooped the draft summit declaration this week. What is expected on this issue? Indeed, Evi, it's it's a rather big elephant, I would say. <laughs> Essentially, uh, the EU is expected to commend Ukraine on its progress and uh, membership-bound reforms and also send the strong message to Moscow, as, as mentioned before, but is actually unlikely to commit to swift EU accession. So member states over the past weeks have been haggling over the positive wording of the summit draft text um, that was uh, mentioning the membership perspective, Poland, the Baltic states and Ukraine have been pushing for language that would indicate uh, to Kiev um, its membership application can be somehow sped up or or rather be closer than further away. And the skeptics among member states are less than amused about um, the EU side encouraging what they call Ukraine's increasingly unfeasible expectations when we think about the statements that we've heard from Ukrainian officials, um, which... uh, you know, would indicate that they expect uh, accession by 2026 or 2024, the start of accession talks. I mean, there has been a lot of dates and timelines flying around. And I think um, many on both many officials on both sides don't think that's necessarily feasible in the discussion. Um, so there was some significant pushback when, when it came to the draft by, by countries like France, Germany, Spain, Netherlands, um, Portugal, 
also Denmark and Belgium, so essentially the Western Europeans, um, that have argued that the language has become too forward-leaning. And as things stand, uh, we'll probably see much more watered-down language uh, um, later this week. The EU's credibility on enlargement may be impacted even if the appropriate language and signals are used to support Ukraine's accession. I think it's important to continue giving, uh, giving the, the right signals uh, to Ukraine that there needs to be reforms and that change needs to happen. Of course, bearing in mind that this is a country, again, as I was saying, is a country at war. So, uh, But I think even irrespective of that, I think the Ukrainians have shown that they are very determined um, in doing this. As for the credibility of the EU, for me, I, I would probably would not place this this issue so much at the at the institutions level, but it's more on the member states um, that need really to figure out how they want to handle enlargement processes uh, in going forward. And if there is anything that I would say in terms of, of discussing the potentially the credibility of the process is that most European leaders, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February last year, said that this was a watershed moment, that it was a turning it was a Zeitenwende. If that is the case, should we continue um, doing the enlargement processes as they were done before the 24th of February 2022? I don't think so. The EU is avoiding a strategic discussion that we need to have on the enlargement process itself. How is it has been done so far? And I think the European political community is a way sort of to, to address this. But in a sense, they are uh, avoiding having a, um, a discussion or European leaders are, are avoiding to have a, really a discussion on how to take uh, forward the, the enlargement process. So I don't see the appetite to really discuss this from a strategic standpoint. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast and our agri-food podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcasts at euractive.com. Of course, it's difficult to put everybody on board, but where are these discussions stumbling on? I think there are different reasons. I think, as you know, I mean, the enlargement uh, policy, as uh, wa- which was up to a certain moment, a really, uh, and continues to be, in my view, still a great transformational uh, policy of the EU, as you know, because of, 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 um, of the different countries that are involved in the process, the difficulties that there are in, in some of them in making reforms, then the fact that some of those that came in in the last enlargement have now sort of backtracked or backslide in their, in their democratic um, values and, 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 let's say, and, and upholding the, the rule of law, I I think some of these are some countries will be concerned about this. Others are concerned about the size of Ukraine. Others are concerned about the fact that it's a country um, that is that is that is at war. So I think there are um, others will be concerned that the fact that the country is a is an agricultural powerhouse. Others will be concerned about uh, you know if this country with the needs of, of of reconstruction and and development comes into the EU, what will happen to European funds that some countries still receive now? So I think there are several. Um, um, areas or several issues of preoccupation from different uh, European countries. But again, 
I, I go back to the point that I was making. Are we looking at this from a strategic standpoint? If the world did change on the 24th of February, 2022, should we continue looking? Okay, I'm not saying that these issues are not relevant. They are from a policy standpoint and also from the national interests of the different countries. But if at the moment we are facing a challenge that is to the European security order, I believe I would make an argument that this is more relevant that we actually look into this uh, from that strategic standpoint than you know, just looking at this nitty gritty uh, stuff that might be difficult for countries to have to deal with from a political standpoint and from a national, uh, national uh, interest. Alex, since you're there and you are speaking to Ukrainians, what is the spirit for the long accession process? So despite the decision to grant Kiev candidate status last June, the prospect of Ukraine joining anytime soon remains um, rather remote. Nobody even in Ukraine uh, believes that. But what is true is that the opening of accession talks could be not too distant. I mean, some EU officials are saying that it seems to be feasible once um, they fulfill all the criteria that have been spelled out by the EU side. And um, they have indeed shown over the last few months um, quite a reform effort. Um, we're looking towards a verbal spring assessment of the seven reform recommendations um, where Ukraine will get an idea what they need to adjust things. Um, and especially those reforms that have been rushed a bit and maybe were a bit too hasty for the taste of some observers um, could be fixed um, by those assessments. And then we have a regular assessment in the EU enlargement package in October. So if Ukraine ticks all the boxes and satisfies the demands, who knows what will actually happen? I mean, mind you, this, this commission term is coming to an end soon. It's probably not too far off when some of my sources suggest that they might want to have one final push for legacy before it takes its leave. And the possibility of new sanctions on Russia by the EU will be the objective of showing support for Ukraine may come up as the topic of discussion. But what can we anticipate in this regard? Listen, Eva, I think um, as we have seen uh, over the past uh, um, nine uh, sanctions package, at each package it became more and more difficult. I understand that there are several countries pushing for more sanctions and to go there where uh, you know we're not being able to to sort of to to go, um, and I think there are others that will have you know naturally will resist um, uh, going down uh, these sanctions um, uh, sort of lane. I think uh, an area where short of a, a new uh, sanctions package, what I think um, uh, EU leaders should really f- and, and EU countries in general should focus is really on, on um, the um, implementation of the ones that are there, on circumvention, on ways that they are there that still limit the effect of, of the sanctions. I think um, the, 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 the work of the new uh, san- EU sanctions czar, uh, Ambassador O'Sullivan, will be important in this regard because his role is, also, is actually to, to make sure that uh, the sanctions are being, um, are being implemented correctly. So I think we need also to see um, how this process now will, will go ahead. But I would, you know, I would say there will be countries pushing a lot for sanctions and also to have something symbolic on the 24th of February this year when we when we mark the first the first anniversary of Russia's aggression. That you know there is something also from a political standpoint that is made that sends a clear message that the EU is fully behind uh, Ukraine in, in in this in this conflict. And if we believe that 2022 was the toughest year for Ukraine, we were wrong. 2023 could be a vital year in the progression of this conflict. 
So in the here and now, Ukraine is preparing for another offensive in the coming spring, which is likely to turn um, even more bloody if you believe Ukrainian military officials, with many of them actually believing in um, Putin's willingness to employ more violent tactics. The EU and the West have committed to whatever it takes to help Ukraine survive this winter um, and prepare for the likely Russian offensive in the spring and support until victory. But really no one, neither in Brussels nor in other capitals and not, not even US officials that um, are briefing us quite regularly are confident enough to make predictions of what the end game could be or actually spell out precisely what Ukrainian victory would mean in practice. Between now and the 24th of February, many things can happen. I think also if President Biden does come to, 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 to Europe and makes any big announcement, I think the Europeans will not want to stay uh, sort of outside uh, those type of, of announcements in terms of support uh, for Ukraine. We need to remain united because if we think that this year 2022 was hard, 2023 may, may prove to be even harder. What we need to, to make sure is that uh, Russia and Mr. Putin do not get away with this war. Thank you very much. I am Eva Chiori and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit your Active for the latest news. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was produced by myself with the help of Alexandra Brzozowski. Thank you for listening.